Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And one of them was a champagne gummy bear. And I thought, geez, I'm in the booth with Valens. He loves champagne. I like champagne. We both love gummy bears. So we started eating them. And I figured I'd take a picture of it because of all the friends I know, Nobody love loves gummy bears I love them. Tony <laughs> I love gummy bears. I'm so no, jealous. The mixture of gummy bears and champagne made the last hour of the show a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. All righty, then. We got a lot of things to get to before we get to Michael Wilbon and Mark Feinsand. Let's start with this. Uh, this was mailed on June the 2nd. Today is June the 6th. June 6th, that's right. So this is a few days old. Mr. Tony, long time little, first time email writer. I actually write many emails, but this is my first to the show. You get the point. At around 5.58 Eastern time today, my phone starts buzzing incessantly. While wishing NHL Commissioner Gary Benton <coughs> excuse me, a happy 70th birthday, you regaled the PTI audience with a brief story of how I, Gary's son, caddied for you many years ago at Alpine Country Club during Dick Schaap's charity event. Actually, 20 years ago to the summer only highlighting the impressiveness of your memory for an old guy. If I'm not mistaken, you shot okay that day, and I did part with a few clutch I did my part with a few clutch reads on the greens. Needless to say, this was a big David Aldridge, I know him moment for my friends. Perhaps no one more so than our mutual friend and your podcast guest the other day, Eric Sedransk, who immediately texted me. This confluence of connections made me want to yell the cheesery and glee. This is Gary Bettman's son, Jordan, who listens to the show. How would I know this? How would I know this? good thing we don't embarrass ourselves by talking hockey. <laughs> anyway... While you may want to pull a Billy Bats and tell me to get my shine box, a yardage book, as it were, now I'm all grown up and cordially inviting you to join me with my father for 18 holes of hockey fun at our home course. We can ask Kip Scheman to join us, too, so he can update us on the latest puck news. I believe the Avalanche frosted the Oilers in game one. That was the 8-6 game while the Rangers skated by the Lightning in their opening match. It Elsewhere in the NHL, he signs at Jordan Bettman. P.S. The old man says thanks for the birthday wishes. How great is this? Now, Gary Bettman did. Gary Bettman actually called Jimmy Pitaro, the head of ESPN, to get my texting number and sent me a note saying thanks for the birthday wish. And yeah, my kid caddied for you at Alpine. <laughs> this is so, this is like totally insane, right? That's totally insane. So it's great though. to know that Jordan Bettman is a listener. Yes. I wonder if he's still caddying or has a real job. <laughs> he's a good caddy. This from Lloyd Kaufman, my classmate at Hewlett High School. I wanted to reach out to you about a good friend of mine, Ira Shapiro, who has recently published his latest book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. I thought Ira, who lives in Potomac, would be a good guest for your podcast show. Recently, Ira was on Lawrence O'Donnell's MSNBC show, as well as over 20 other radio interview shows talking about his book. He's a big fan of yours. He asked me if I could put in a good word for him. Hope all is well with you and your family, despite these trying times we live in. You know, Lloyd Kaufman. Well, I don't do that. I mean, it's, it's not that I don't like Ira Shapiro, who I don't know. But I'm not going to do a book about Mitch McConnell and the betrayal of the America. I mean, that's just not what we do. Right. If we want to do that, we have Crystal Liz or, or Chuck Todd, you know, and we don't do that. But it's, it's lovely. And the fact that he went, Lawrence O'Donnell is famous for, yeah. stop the hammering. Stop <laughs> the hammering. That's and if right. Irish Shapiro is a fan of mine, he should call Lawrence O'Donnell right now at his home in L.A. and go, stop, stop the hammering. <laughs> One more. Len Rubin. 
Michael, this is a guy who invited us to Montauk Downs. Nice. Guy went to Snow Hill Camp. Guy was, you know. It's Len Rubin again. This time I'm not writing about you're coming out to Long Island to play golf at Montauk Downs. That invitation is still there. I'm sure you many Long Island fans would be thrilled to hear that you had made the trek to the sacred ground of the Downs. That's not what this is about. One of my dearest friends has a son who is one of your greatest friends. Fans. His name is Peter Sonnenschein. He lives in Philadelphia. He has a rare genetic disorder, familial diasortonomia. I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. It's quite debilitating. He says it's been a struggle for Pete and his family, but they have persevered, and Pete, to his great credit, has become a wonderful artist. He got a real kick out of reading you reading my email on the podcast, and he was so moved that he has done your portrait. I'm sending a copy along with his contact information. Now, if I actually look like this, I belong in a home. But it's, it's sort of beautifully done in its way. Yes. The coloring is beautiful, and the caricature quality of it is lovely. So I'm really happy to say thank you very much for that. And then that concludes some of our email segment. Nats win yesterday. Nats win the series against Cincinnati. I should hope to God. Cincinnati's the worst team. Yes. Worst team in baseball. They win close in a bunch of games. I'm watching this game last night. They're up one in the last inning. They have Ciszek on the mound because either they've smartly given up on Tanner Rainey or they just wanted to rest him, which is more likely. Yeah, I think more likely. That he wanted to rest him. Ciszek makes you nervous. There's a guy, hey, they all make me nervous. <laughs> That's there's a guy delivery. on first, and then and there's two outs, and the leadoff hitter for Cincinnati comes up, and he hits a ground ball to shortstop, and the throw is late. And it's one of those throws where you're going to challenge the Nats are going to challenge, even though everybody looking at it thinks by a split second in the tie goes to the runner phase, the runner is going to be safe. Indeed, the runner is safe. Okay, so now you have two on, you have two out in a one-run game in the ninth. Am I saying this correctly? Yes. Bottom of the ninth, two on. And Ciszek, who has a vaguely odd, underhanded delivery, you know, is is still, he's around the plate. Across the body. He's not walking anybody. It's not like Tanneraney. He's not walking four guys or anything like that. He's hittable. Sure. Kiebert Ruiz sets up outside. There's a right-handed batter. He sets up on the outside. Calls for a pitch to the outside. Whips a throw to Josh Bell on first base. There's a lot of dust but Josh Bell, it seems to me, tags the runner on the hand before he gets the hand to the base. And the runner is called out. Now, at this point, Cincinnati, and I don't think they're going to win it, but Cincinnati challenges. Runner out. The inning and the game is saved by this great throw. I mean, unexpected throw and unexpectedly great throw by Ruiz to Bell. And so the game ends on two disputed calls at first base. Involving the same guy, Welcome one is a hitter and baseball. one is a runner. Really weird. Yeah. So the Nats win that game. So do you ever good. when when you watch Josh Bell receive the ball when he's in his stretch, it always looks like his foot comes off as early. he's catching the yes, ball. Yes, I agree with that. I think he's off the base early. You know, because he's trying to sell it. If you get off the base early, you're saying to the ump, "I already had this." Right. But I think he's off early. Uh, do you in see other the things, do you see the Phillies game? No, they came back to win. The Phillies did? Oh, yeah. So now they're 3-0 and since firing and Girardi. The new well, we'll talk to Feinstein about Harper having, having some numbers. You know, wow. Um, Billy Horschel and Minji Lee won comfortably in golf tournaments over the weekend. I watched, but they, Michael, not compelling. 
I can look the the women's U.S. Open compelling for the monster purse that it had, and for getting so much coverage across a lot of different platforms locally. And it makes, for a course I've played, yeah, the course looks beautiful locally. It makes you really excited to try and get out to Congressional to see them in a couple of weeks at the end of June. Uh, Billy Herschel had a had a tremendous lead, and, and then it was the eagled. type of thing that once he yeah once he got through the front he's nine, he's steady player, steady nine modern pro. Yeah, he's not you know he's. Did you hear what his kids called him? It was like they called me like Daddy Horschel. Daddy Horschel, they yeah. call him. That's crazy. Like Daddy Warbucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of crazy. He's got a bunch of children. He seems pleasant. Um, he's indistinguished from the others. You know, not a great personality, but always dresses very dresses well. Dresses beautifully. Great shoes. He's got that Ralph Lauren yeah. contract. He, he's, he creeps into putts in a way that makes you a little bit nervous, but he's a very effective putter. Yeah. So uh, Minji Lee crushed it. She set a record for uh, under par in the U.S. Women's Open. What else did I have? Oh, um, Nadal. Oh, yeah. Nadal and uh, Sviantek won. I never thought Nadal would win. I never thought he'd beat Zverev. But Zverev hurt his ankle and started weeping yeah, on uh, the court. Weeping was yeah. taken off in a stretcher. Wheelchair. Wheel- right? Yeah, did you see yeah. the stills of the ankle? How bad? Bad. Yeah. Tore, was it broken? Tore uh, several ligaments. Oh, yeah. I mean. I mean, he went down like. So Nadal, I thought Nadal was up by one set, but I thought Nadal was going to lose because he'd had two grueling matches before. And then he ends up playing a kid who idolizes him. Yeah. A Norwegian kid named Rude. Yeah, Casper Rude, yeah. And who idolizes him. And you knew that Nadal was going to take him out. Yeah. And took him out in an hour. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, and Sviantek took out Coco Goff in half an hour. She's so good. And and Coco Goff, that's a tremendous run for her to get to the finals. I mean, it's a great for breakthrough for her. And she ended up losing the doubles as well with Jessica Pagula. Um, but Jessica Pagula's parents own the the, Bills. Uh, the Buffalo Bills and yes. the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, and she's she's having a fantastic year. I think she's top 10. Uh, so she gets second place. Yes. Coco Goff gets two seconds two out seconds. of the French. Yeah, but still, N- Nadal. Glassware. The, yeah, glassware is great, but that match Nadal, like that first set tiebreak, um, was he was down, I think six two, and just had some of the greatest shots of so ever. So his foot was asleep. Yeah, I know his foot's his, he's got that foot issue that Liz talked about the other day. So happy to have had Liz on. Yeah, to talk about Nadal. Don't don't have to do that again because you know exactly where the show stands because it's where Liz stands. One other small thing: Michael and I played in the father son on Saturday at Columbia. Um, we were not great. We did not get any glassware. We did not place, but I had a lovely time, and I'm so glad you you played with me. Yeah, once again, our moment of not talking happened at the same spot it always does. Instead of happening on number three, the bridges, we waited till number four. We were sitting at a cool one under, and I just needed you from the gold tees to hit something onto the front of the green and maybe just protect the bogey. Uh, I think you were in your pocket as I was tapping in for a smooth five. So I should say this. On a 172-yard par three. Here is the thing that is important. Whenever Michael needed me most, I failed. <laughs> but the, you're aware of that. The three, the three holes or so that Michael was out of position, I failed. Really needed you. And, and, and mm. it's not like I went first. No, I always go last because I'm playing from forward tees. Right. I failed miserably. <laughs> I failed my child. I did. That doesn't mean I didn't have a wonderful time, right. but I failed my child. But I'm, I'm old. <laughs> so, but that's, I was thinking about this. The last two times that I've been out, I'm having such a hard time focusing on golf. Because it's a children. It's a, yeah, it's a big month for us. We have school ending. But 
this is like the the other side of 35. I just can't get myself to focus. Mm. Uh, and I need to find a way to to find, you know, enjoyment in those small moments rather than just being plagued by the fact that you made a seven on that hole. I was terrible. I couldn't get out of the bunker. I was totally terrible. In other news, I... congrats to Walter and Roy Neal. Yeah, they uh, won. Yeah. They won. Walter had two eagles. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, they won. So it's that a big was week just... for big big week for Walter with the Maryland Dam. Maybe I should show up and and try and get in his head like he did to me at the 2001 MAC Championship on the 17th hole. It's he got into your head. Uh, yeah, oh. well, I was unseasoned at the time. Um, I I failed so utterly. <laughs> I do it all the a time. Beautiful morning. <laughs> it was lovely. Michael birdied the first hole, and I thought we were going to cruise. Yeah. And I, and when I say I thought we were going to cruise, I mean, I wasn't going to help. So I also just I kept hitting it inside 10 feet, but on the wrong side of the hole. So on Roadrunner, on number six, it, there's it's a tough green to putt back to front. And I have a four and a half footer, and it's like you either make it or it goes by six feet. I mean, I made the par, but you just can't can't really be aggressive on those putts unless you have a partner. He didn't have a partner. That's the subtext. He didn't have a partner. But I wouldn't trade the moment for anything. Oh, no, no. It's, I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. It was great. All right. Uh, can, I, can I read something? You mentioned Liz a moment ago, yeah. Liz Clark. She sent me this this morning. Um, please tell Tony that while on an absurdly long and slow-moving security line at Charles de Gaulle this morning, she was uh, talking with a couple behind her, and a man online well ahead of her turned around and said, wait a minute, are you Liz Clark? <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> said he's from New York and is a huge fan of the show. Loves the show. <laughs> so bizarre. She does have a distinct voice. So bizarre. It's great, isn't we it? We will uh, come back with Michael Wilbon. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, Five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Michael Noah from Singapore. Seven years there, 89 songs later, sending us a new single called This Man, I guess you'd say a prolific avocation. Your podcast has made all the difference during the pandemic, making me feel less homesick for D.C. Hearing you and Michael makes me just a bit envious, both missing the banter with my dad and time together with my grown kids, who are all in the United States now. I know you cherish this precious time together. This is called This Man. It was originally supposed to, it's a lovely song. It is, isn't it? It's originally supposed to play in Michael Wilbon, but... What happens is we don't have Wilbon, and the reason we don't have Wilbon is because he's in transit. He's going from San Francisco to Boston, and it's difficult to coordinate and arrange specific times where you can get on the show. It's okay, but this is the sort of second time during the playoffs that this has happened, so we don't want to do this again. I'm looking at Nigel when I say we. We don't want to schedule Mike if, if there's any chance that he's traveling, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So we're not going to do it. That was and, a lot of eye contact. Yeah, and I will get to, <laughs> I'll get to the basketball game. And I'll go over exactly how I felt about this game um, from the Friday. For those of you who watched PTI, you know that Wilbon was not on PTI on Friday, the day after game one of the Celtics against the Warriors, where the Celtics put together a 40-point fourth quarter. 
and went from being 12 down to 12 up at the end of the game. Another game that wasn't close and late. Another, I'm not going to say a bad game, but another undramatic game in the playoffs in the NBA, which has suffered from a plethora of uninspiring, unsatisfying games. And at that point, Adande, Jay Adande was on the show, and we talked about what would happen next. And we both sort of agreed that if there's one team, now that is a crippling loss for 25 teams. You're at home. You have a 12-point lead in the fourth quarter. You're at home. The guy who is the best player on the other team shoots three for 17, Jason Tatum, and you still lose. At home, blow a 12-point lead when their best player isn't good. Devastating. Sends most teams reeling. Not Golden State. Golden State has earned the benefit of the doubt because they've won three championships. Two with Durant, one without. They're a veteran team. The spine of that team, Green and Thompson and Curry, are veterans. If they say, it's just one game, don't worry about it. I think you have to take their word for it. This was my point on television. That's exactly what happened. I watched the first half, close first half. Yeah, uh, Warriors didn't look particularly good. Clay Thompson played poorly. Didn't shoot at all, I didn't think. I went to sleep, woke up to find out they'd won by 400 points. <laughs> that in the third quarter, they went up by 15 or 20 or something like that, and they crushed. And so once again, not close, late. Once again, a disparate score. Once again, no reason to watch till the end of the game to see somebody dribble it out. What does it mean on the overarching um, theme of the playoffs? Well, we don't know. But here's one thing that we do know. Boston has been a better road team than a home team. They've been better on the road than at home. Yes. They were like 8-2 and two on the road or 7-2 and two on the road until last night. And they've lost a bunch of games at home. So you shouldn't be surprised if Golden State comes in and wins two. One for certain, two. You should not be surprised at that. Golden State, again, a veteran championship team. They can do that. Well, I don't know if they're going to do that. I'm going to wait and see like everybody else. But in my mind, I don't think Boston's going to win them both. You're a Celtics fan. Do you? No, well, they don't handle prosperity well. So if they were win to win game three, they, typically after that, they sort of have a down game. So, uh, you know, they, and it's been a frustrating run for them in the playoffs because they just can't seem to put wins back to back. That's right. Um, so no, right. and, and you know, you saw it from, from the Warriors last night when they get rolling, you know, they just, they don't miss. Now the wild card is Draymond Green. Yes. He could have gotten tossed last night. Yeah. He Draymond was. Green is a bully on the court. Draymond Green is involved in physical stuff in every single game. And Draymond Green does not care. <laughs> not and when bit. you give him a microphone, he says, I get special <laughs> treatment. I deserve special treatment. Bad or good. You know, he doesn't care. No. He cost him a championship a few years back by getting tossed out of a game six. Mm -hmm. He got tossed out of five. He couldn't play in six. They lost. They lost as a result of this. Draymond Green is the most important player in that regard. He, you cannot afford to lose him, and he couldn't care less. So, <laughs> so which is true. difficult. Yes. I think if you're a coach, that's difficult, although I'm sure Steve Kerr loves him. Um, so that was, that was the important part of that game. Boston, Al Horford looked like he was 
old in this one. Yeah. But you get like three to four days between games. Yes. So that doesn't mean if, if this was a regular series with every other day, you'd say you could scratch Al Horford. You'd right. say he couldn't help you, but he'll be able to come back. When's the next game? I uh, believe Wednesday. Is that when it is? I think it is. Yeah, Wednesday, just, June 8th. Yeah. And so yes. Wednesday, Friday, the next Monday. Yeah. yeah. So the Friday game, Al Horford's going to have a difficult time, but the Wednesday game, he'll probably be fine. He'll be okay. Does yeah. anybody want to add anything to what I've said? If not, we'll just get out. No, I mean, it was uh, – I think you're right about the, the, the games. They just haven't been great late. You know, there's been these blowouts. and then you That's know, right. And you see just at the end – As opposed to hockey, for example. Right. I, last night, for reasons I cannot even explain – I was going around the dial among two golf tournaments and maybe a baseball game. But no, I think, the, I think the golf tournaments may have still been on. And Tampa Bay was playing the Rangers. And I settled in with about two minutes to go of a tie 2-2 game. Two minutes to go. It goes down to one minute. It's now under one minute. Nobody's pulling goalies because you yeah. say to yourself, we'll go to overtime. Under one minute and Tampa shoots and the, and the puck goes to Cistercian's left side into the net. And Tampa Bay, it's like 40 seconds to go. Yeah, thrilling. And Tampa Bay wins the game. And you just go, wow, that's close late, isn't it? That's everything you could want in a playoff game because if Tampa Bay doesn't win that game, they go down 3 nothing. Yes. They go down 3 nothing. So that's yeah. not dribbling out the clock? <laughs> that's not dribbling out the Four clock. corners drill, yeah. No, that's... So that's what the hockey has had. And playoff hockey. And they've had it. Yeah. Playoff hockey is, is always, always a lot of fun. And you do get those games, the overtime games, where somebody scores and you just walk off the, the ice, you know. Yeah. But uh, hockey but yeah. playoffs, great NBA playoffs, eh, so far. <laughs> so far. We'll see. Mark Feinstein, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Will James, and he says, I am the principal percussionist of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. I've attached a recording of a xylophone rag I recorded several years ago called Girlfriend's Medley, arranged by the great Bob Becker, if you'd like to use it on the show. The work is a medley of three 1920s tunes that all have female names, Margie, Jean, and Dinah, hence Girlfriend's Medley. You remember these tunes, right? I was in high school at the time. I thought about sending in music for the show, but most of my performances happen with the orchestra, to which I have no distribution rights, but thought this solo project I did might be fun to send. The pandemic was difficult for us in the orchestral world. Performing for large audiences was tough to do safely, but I'm very thankful to be performing more regularly. Like many others have said, your podcast has provided a nice distraction from the state of the world, while our normal routine of practicing and performing has been disrupted. He'd like to be the exclusive and official xylophone soloist of the Tony Kornheiser show. And tell Chuck Todd, if we have a horn opening, I'll make sure his resume gets through. <laughs> Will James. Michael, if people like Will James want to send his very interesting yes. and catchy original music in, how do they do it? Uh, send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. This guy's a great musician. He's the principal percussionist yeah. of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Delightful, isn't it? Come on. It's lovely. Mark Feinsand joins us. I sit at Uncle Benny's table with a book in front of me, The Franchise. New York Yankees, A Curated History of the Bronx Bombers by Mark Feinstein with a foreword by Joe Torrey. Tell us why you wrote it. Uh, well, the publisher, Triumph Books, I've worked uh, with them a couple of times on a couple of other books. They came to me. They said, we're starting this new, uh, this new series, and we want you to, to launch it with the first one with the Yankees. And I said, uh, well, i got nothing else better to do, so I may as well uh, dig back in and, and go to Yankees history and 
ruin uh, seven or eight months of my life by writing another book. So when you say a series, are there going to be a lot of books about specific franchises uh, farmed out to other authors? That is the plan for my understanding. I believe the Boston Red Sox will be the second one. I know Nigel right. will be interested in that one. <laughs> right. Uh, Sean McAdam, my old friend who covered the Red Sox for a long time, is, is authoring that one. Uh, I think after that, they're looking at the Cubs and Cardinals maybe as the next two. So uh, they're certainly starting in the baseball world. And uh, if the series does well, then I would imagine they would branch out to many more. Well, you've got to have the Dodgers and you've got to have the Giants. Sure. You know, and, and other than that, Maybe the Tigers, but you don't gotta gotta after that. You know, there's about eight to ten, you gotta, and then after that, I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, how long is the history of the, the Tampa Bay Rays going to be, right? That could be more of a pamphlet than a, than a book, although I've been yeah. telling our buddy Mark Topkin for a long time, he's covered every game they've ever played, basically. I said, you've been there since day one. You have to write a book about that. But I guess there's also the question of how many people are going to buy a book about that, which uh, when you talk about Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers and Giants sure. and Cubs and Cardinals, sure. uh, big, big historic fan bases who uh, gobble these kinds of things up. Are you a Yankee fan? Were you a Yankee fan? Uh, I was a Yankee fan. I, my father grew up two blocks away from Yankee Stadium, took me there for the first time when I was four years old. I got to see Thurman Munson play uh, just about three months before his plane crash. Uh, so I'm, I'm always thankful that I had a chance to watch him play. He was, he was one of those players I liked when I first started. You know, I, I probably talked about Thurman Munson the way Bootsy talks about Juan Soto. Uh, and so you know, the fact that I actually have pictures of, of me at a game where he played was very exciting. Uh, 2001, I started covering the Yankees, and as uh, you know, and people in our industry know, your fandom gets beaten out of you very, very quickly uh, because you just can't have that emotional attachment uh, when you're sitting in the press box. Where uh, you know, I learned that very hard lesson my first year. Uh, the Yankees went to the World Series. It was that post 9/11 off season or postseason, and uh, it was very emotional. It was very exciting. All those huge wins. But then Mariano Rivera blows the game in the ninth inning in Game Seven, and instead of you know drowning my sorrows in a beer like I would have done in previous years. I had to, you know, figure out what I was writing at that point because everything I had planned on writing was dust. So uh, it gets beaten out of you, but my whole family are Yankee fans. My kids are Yankee fans. My father is still a Yankee fan, my wife. So they get very excited when I've been able to do projects like this. Uh, you know, I wrote one a couple of years ago on, on the 2009 team, and now we have one looking at the whole history. So they really enjoy this, and so I, I like watching the Yankees with my kids and watching it through their eyes. Did you know George Steinbrenner at all? I covered uh, Steinbrenner probably for about 10 years, I would say about four of which he was still George mm -hmm. Steinbrenner as we knew him. Uh, he had his stroke in 2004, so after that he had sort of stepped back a little bit and you started seeing the, the sons get more involved. Uh, but I got a few years of that when he would come in the clubhouse and rant and rave, and I remember a game where Pedro Martinez hit Alfonso Soriano and Derek Jeter, and Steinbrenner came into the clubhouse afterwards and was just going crazy and sort of crying about him hitting my guys, and he got very emotional, and that, I got a little taste of it, but certainly nothing to the extent that uh, uh, that you probably saw in the 70s. Yeah, I, I did a big piece on him for the New York Times Magazine at one point. Um, I enjoyed my time with him very much. I would say that there are a lot of famous owners, um, but in my lifetime, I would say that Steinbrenner and second, maybe Jerry Jones, are important and famous owners, and they've, they've shifted the way their teams have been thought of, you know, that they've, they've had influence far beyond others. People will talk about the Roonies and the great 
you know, and they will talk about the Roonies as great men. I don't think anyone will talk about George Steinbrenner and Jerry Jones as great men necessarily. But their impact on the world of sports is, I think, greater than almost any other owners I've ever come in contact with. That's just off the top of my head. What do you think? George Steinbrenner's impact on baseball is probably as large as anybody's impact in the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, they, they created rules in the league to counter what he was doing. He was the first owner that really sort of seized the advantage of free agency uh, and said, well, if I can go sign anybody I want, I'm going to. And, uh, you know, they, a lot of the financial rules that are in place in the game uh, with luxury tax thresholds and all the other stuff were put in as a Steinbrenner, you know, effect basically. So, uh, you know, and then you look at what he did with the with the television side of things, with signing that huge deal with MSG Network back in the '80s. That was the first time that a team really, you know, capitalized on on local media rights as giving them a huge financial advantage. So, uh, you combine that with the fact that he had this uh, almost unhealthy hunger to win at all costs. And the fact that he really enjoyed a back page, uh, he was he was a, a more visible owner and a more impactful owner, not always in a good way, but he was That's a right. more impactful owner than anybody else I've ever seen. All right, let me shift to modern-day baseball. Let me start with something, and we'll start with a Yankee. Uh, Joe Girardi won a World Series as the manager of the New York Yankees, and then he went to Philadelphia, where he was there for two full seasons and a quarter or a third of the next one, and he got canned a few days ago. Philadelphia hasn't lost since he got canned. Can you explain why he got canned and whether this stuff was his fault? I don't know that it was his fault. Why he got canned is pretty easy. Uh, The Phillies were 22-29. and Dave Dombrowski, their president of baseball operations, is a very win-now type of guy. We've seen that with him everywhere he's been. Uh, And he looked at this roster after adding Kyle Schwarber and after adding Nick Castellanos and said, this team is better than this, and you're not going to get rid of the players. Now, it would help to bring in a reliever or two, uh, but they just needed a new voice, a new change, and uh, you know they ended up going with Robbie Thompson, who was on Girardi's staff with the Yankees uh, you know, for many years, predated Girardi in Philadelphia, and stayed on his staff. Obviously, the two of them were very close. Rob Thompson's a great baseball man. He's been in the game almost 40 years, but I think it was more just 22 and 29 is, is a terrible start. But there's some recent history, pretty close to you there in Washington. Mm-hmm. 19 and 31 yeah. became a World Series champion. So Dombrowski mm-hmm. thought this team is still capable of making the postseason, especially with a third wild card. But something needs to change, and and the voice in the room was what he decided needed to change. I don't find myself disagreeing with that. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can pin on Dombrowski. Uh, the bullpen stinks, the defense stinks, and they haven't hit the kind of home runs they thought they were going to hit. You can pin that on a general manager. But when you lose one-run games all the time, as the Phillies were doing, that, to me, Mark, seems like the manager. Yeah, you know, people were pinning the bullpen usage on Girardi, which is funny because when he was in New York, that was, you know, I covered him for, for nine years in New York. Uh, that was one of his strengths. He was always looked at as a guy who really knew how to manage a bullpen. Now, he had much better relievers in New York, and you know when you're, when you're looking at the first six or seven years of his time there and he can turn the ball over to Mariano Rivera in the eighth sure. or ninth, uh, yeah, that, that's a nice thing to have. Um, but, yeah, the bullpen usage was a, a big thing in Philadelphia, and I think uh, you know, Dombrowski probably looked at that. And like you said, 
something had to change. You can't fire all the players. Uh, maybe you can add a few between now and August 2nd on the trade deadline. But, uh, you know, that voice in the room and, you know, Girardi always had that look. And I'm going back to his days in Miami where you'd, you'd see him in the dugout and the veins were kind of popping a little bit in his forehead and his neck. And he portrayed a very tense um, figure in that dugout. And, and I know that was one of the reasons why he was let go by the Yankees. They had a lot of young guys coming up with Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, a couple other guys. And, and Brian Cashman said he, he wanted a more sort of calming figure there. That yeah. He didn't want that tension that you could see with Girardi rubbing off on the younger guys. I wouldn't be surprised, given where their record was, if Dombrowski had the same kind of thought in his head of, we want somebody who looks more you know, like this is all going to be okay. And even when Girardi's teams were winning, he still didn't have that look on his face. So uh, that, that could have played into it as well. All right. We got the trade deadline probably a month away coming up on us. Are there names that are being floated out there of people that you think, and it's, it's very often teams like the Nats who have one or two people who somebody else wants, and like a Josh Bell seems to me very, very sought after um, by other teams. Are there names out there of people who you think might be traded? Yeah, you know, I think uh, uh, Bell is certainly going to be one. I think we can we can crush the Soto stuff uh, oh, yeah. now. Yeah, I think true. we've you know we Mike Rizzo came out and basically said that uh, recently that that Juan Soto is not being traded, and I think it would be foolish to trade Juan Soto right now. So let's take him off the table. Um, but yeah, there are going to be plenty of of big name players out there. Wilson Contreras, the catcher for the Cubs, he's going to be uh, moved at some point. You know, they had their big sell off last year. And and he was the one guy they didn't trade, mainly because he had another year of control. And, uh, you know, why not hold on and see what happens next year? But, you know, next year isn't going very well for them either. Um, so I think Contreras is a guy. Now, catchers are a little tough to trade. Uh, you know, sort of a contender acquiring a new catcher midseason is tricky because he's got to learn a whole new pitching staff. Um, but Contreras is, a, is obviously a, a really good player, and he'll, he'll probably be on the move. The Red Sox are going to be a really interesting team to watch because, They've gotten off to a bad start. They've played a little better of late. And, again, with the expanded playoffs, you know, you look at them and, yeah, they're 12 games out of, uh, of the division, but I think they're actually in a wild-card spot right now. So uh, if they decide to move anybody, Sander Bogart has an opt-out at the end of the year. J.D. Martinez is a free agent at the end of the year. Those two guys would be very highly sought after. And then there will always be some starting pitchers. Frankie Montas is the one guy Oakland hasn't moved yet. Uh, Luis Castillo has been a trade rumor candidate for, uh, it seems, three years. So the Reds, with the season they're having, wouldn't shock me at all if he would go. Either of those guys would help any contending rotation in the big leagues. Let me get you out of here on this. Max Scherzer got bit by a dog. Now, Max Scherzer (laughs) is a rescue dog guy. I know this because we both got our dogs. He's got more than one dog. But we both got dogs from the Washington, you know, Animal Rescue League some years back. So I know he loves dogs. And the, one of his dogs bit him on his pitching hand, it turns out. What, what are we hearing about this? Well, yeah, apparently his dog hurt, his, hurt her leg in, during a run, and he was trying to calm her down. And, and she bit his hand, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess. He's on the IL. It's not a bad injury. The bite, uh, he said he, he basically had to skip one day of, uh, of throwing and then, and then started throwing again the next day. So uh, not a huge deal, certainly for a guy who isn't going to pitch for another month or change, month and change anyway. Uh, but it always makes for a cute story. And, and it's funny because the first thing I thought of, David Cohn got bit by his dog uh, on his hand years ago, and he had to miss a start. 
And because he missed that start, El Duque took his place. And that was El Duque's sort of debut into New York and became a huge piece of that team. So the Mets aren't going to have the opportunity to have some guy uh, come in and and be this revelation because Max Scherzer got bit on his finger by his dog, but it's certainly uh, uh, the tabloids, I'm sure, are having some fun with it. Thank you for mentioning David Cohn, because on the cover of Mark's book, The Franchise, there's a quote by David Cohn, a a must-read for any baseball fan. So good. I mean, you'd you'd rather have him give you a blurb than say me, I'm sure. (laughs) I mean, well, and I must say, though, you, your name appears in this book, Tony. We, uh, I, I did a lot of stuff going through the New York Times archive, and uh, I pulled out some, some Kornheiser gems. So, uh, you know, for littles out there who want to see a little of Tony's 1970s Yankees writing, it's, uh, it's right there. God, I was so bad. <laughs> I wasn't much. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We'll talk soon. Mark Feinstein, Thanks, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is The Tony Kornheiser Show. Hello, Mr. Tony. Let me tell you a few things about me that might convince you to give me a shot. Except he says, shoot. I think you got the wrong word there. You got a proofread. That's lesson number one. Read your message for intelligibility. Fix the usage so I know what you really mean. Ask your mother if you wrote erroneously. There's a solution. Why don't you try a proofreader when you write to me? Try a proofreader, cause your grammar is ghastly. Won't you try a proofreader? Maybe then we'll see if you have me a future. It's brilliant. I will stay tame for Eli Crookshank all summer long. Okay. The summer of Eli. Let's hold this in case Michael convinces me we should do this. Brilliant. Steve Lipton, Springfield, this goes Virginia. goes to the top of this kid's resume. Brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. He writes this. What does featured a on the Tony Kornheiser show. What does a proofreader have in common with a vampire? They both search for typos. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. It's a brilliant song. Love it. Nigel, do the Bethesda Bagel ad, please. Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You would as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com, for the location in the D.C. area in issue, then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. Um, that'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, my tears are falling because you've taken her away, and though it really hurts me, so there's something that I got to say. Take good care of my baby. Please don't ever make her blue. Just tell her that you love her. Make sure you're thinking of her in everything you say and do. Take good care of my baby. One of the great songs of all time. Bobby V, if I'm not mistaken. Bobby V, yes. I don't think V was his actual name, but Bobby V is the guy who took the place of Buddy Holly. Yes. Uh, was going to go crickets. to the concert as yeah, from Fargo, and when yeah. the crash happened, yeah. they scrambled yeah. to get a replacement. Bobby V yes. had a great career, I think. Thanks yeah. to Mark Feinstein. Thanks today. Uh, thanks as well to today's sponsors, Sunday Indochino and Trade Coffee. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Bobby T- Valine. Yeah, I knew yes. it wasn't Bobby V. Yeah. TK just- Bootsy Five. There's some great uh, prep performance polos for the little guys. Go for matching Father's Day outfits. Uh, check out the Ace Polo. One other thing I wanted to say, and I didn't, because I, I thought, I thought we'd get a chance to talk to Mike, and Mike had travel issues, which is fine. We learned a lesson. One of the things that was important that I didn't mention would get to with him was this is Nadal's 22nd major. He's two ahead of Djokovic now, not just one. It's going to be hard for Djokovic to pass him. 23 is going to be hard because there are young kids coming up. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Makes me happy. Don't like Djokovic. 
Uh, from Tom Till. Tom Till is from where? Orange, Virginia. I have a couple of brush with fame tales I thought you'd enjoy. First, at the Waldorf Astoria in 1944, someone informed a singer who happened to be performing at the hotel that night that an engagement party was going on in the next room. The singer walked over to the party and politely asked the happy couple if they would like a ballad in their honor. The happy couple were my grandparents, and they eagerly accepted Mr. Sinatra's kind <laughs> offer. How great is great that? Is that? <laughs> And second, my mother and aunt were at an off-Broadway show in the early 90s. Their tickets put them alongside two other patrons, a quintessential New York yuppie and one Jeff Bridges. Before the lights even dimmed, the yuppie whipped out his bulky 90s cell phone and started calling literally every living soul he knew that he was sitting next to Jeff Bridges in a theater. Finally, my aunt, a quintessential New York violet, who has never once shrunk from anybody or anything, anywhere, ever, had had enough and grabbed his arm. As this is a family program, I will not quote her verbatim, but she hissed what in the Long Island dialect roughly translates to, put that thing away, please. <laughs> After watching the whole scene unfold, a very amused Mr. Bridges took my aunt's suggestion as his cue and said, or Jeff Bridges will leave. <laughs> How great is that? From Jamie... Opetisano, Opetisano in Hingham, Massachusetts, where Bob Ryan is. Oh, yes. Years ago, when I regularly flew between Boston and New York for work, occasionally I was upgraded to first class, which was a welcome treat, even though one does not get much time to enjoy the benefits of first class on a 45-minute flight. Once, when I was already seated in first class, while the last few passengers were boarding the shuttle from Logan to LaGuardia, I was pleasantly surprised to notice Yo-Yo Ma step through the door with his cello. With only two unoccupied first-class seats remaining, I was intrigued to see how Mr. Ma would stow the large instrument. It was clear that Mr. Ma had done this before, as he quickly secured the cello in the bulkhead row in front of me. But after he took care of the cello, Mr. Ma proceeded to the main cabin. Imagine my surprise and delight when I looked back to see the virtuoso buckling into a seat in Gen Pop, and I realized the cello would fly first class while Yo-Yo Ma flew coach. Love the show. From Mike O'Connell, regarding your cell service in the house, have you considered having Carol tighten the screws on all the electrical outlets? If that doesn't work, try opening all your doors and windows and shouting representative. I know what I'm talking about. I once flew on a plane with Wi-Fi from Benjamin Bruner. In Eastern Maryland, I have two suggestions for your cell phone signal problem. One, buy a new house. Two, offer to have a cell tower put up in your yard with a sign that says, sponsored by Tony Kornheiser. You'll be a hit with the neighbors and it'll keep the deer out. From Wynn Mossman, I recently sat behind the famous AT&T engineer responsible for increasing cell signals in customers' homes. But you said you didn't want any more famous people stories, so forget it. From Timothy Gombas. Have you matched the loss of cell coverage to the phases of the moon? I hadn't thought of doing that. <laughs> Something we'll have to work on. From Josh Cromwell. If you can't do your work, tide. there's a simple solution. Just call AT&T and ask them what happened. <laughs> From Christopher Mitchum in the mean streets of Silver Spring. In keeping with the show's philosophy of the connective tissue, I thought you should know that Shade, S-H-A-E-D, a past player on the Tony Kornheiser show, recently opened for some band called Coldplay at FedEx Field at June 1st. It's quite a jump from the time Nigel discovered them down in Georgetown three years ago. Chelsea, Max, and Spencer remember him well. I didn't ask why. Since appearing on the Tony Kornheiser show, they've apparently had a top hit with a song called Trampoline. You won't know it, but your son and your grandchildren will. Appeared on New Year's Rockin' Eve with Jimmy Kimmel. Also did a video with a has-been named Sting. But in no time does their biography mention they also appeared on the TK show, an oversight to be sure. Also, my 16-year-old border collie hates Subarus, but that's for another email. This is from J.H. in Herndon. Can you have a David Aldridge moment with a golf course? When you had Iris Sedransk on to talk about member for a day, he mentioned Wanamoset Country Club. I said, hey, I know that club. I grew up going to the Northeast Amateur 
and occasionally played there. I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has passed on this, but my brother worked on the grounds crew one summer. Someone was damaging the greens at night. We rigged up a grounds crew cart with a two-by-four and ran the two culprits into a speeding two-by-four. When the police showed up, we told them we had no idea how they both ended up knocked out on the cart path. I know I'm going back to an old game, but it was a good one. I'll tell you my story about giving up first-class seat to Jerry Rice when he played for the 49ers about a month after that game ends, which is good. And from Sandra Rohde, thank you for having Eric on the show today. Well, this was last week, obviously. Highlighting member for a day in ALS. I've lost friends to this horrible disease. In May, Jolene and I enjoyed meeting KJ's mom, Bev, who was diagnosed last year. She sings as beautifully as her daughter. By the way, I have two friends who worked in the corporate offices of Steak and Ale in Dallas, Texas. This came in handy when we visited Ireland and received private tours and bottles, not just drinks, at Jameson, <laughs> Tullamore Dew, Bailey's, and Guinness. I never have enough outlets. We'll do one more. Jay from Columbus, Georgia. No mention of the Binghamton Bearcat baseball team in the College World Series? Come on, man. They traveled to Stanford, probably get shellacked. This is last week in their first game against the Cardinal. Binghamton is 22-28 and 28 overall, but cruised the America East tournament with three wins by a combined score of 35-11. I knew they were going to play Stanford. I don't know what happened. I think had Binghamton won, somebody would have called. <laughs> if you're out on your bike tonight, do wear white. Later, he gets the rebound, passes it to the man, shoots it, and boom goes the dynamite.
Thank you.